Good morning. Most little boys have dreams, right? They'll dream about being a real-life Indiana Jones, or they'll dream about being a professional baseball player, or an adventurer charting some uncharted territory. And I'd bet when you were younger, you probably had dreams too, right? You probably had lots of them. You probably dreamt about being a princess, marrying the most wonderful Prince Charming, and being the belle of the ball. Well, for most of us, when we grew up, or while we were growing up, we realized some of those dreams, they just weren't going to happen. It just wasn't realistic to be a real-life Indiana Jones, which is a bummer because that is an awesome dream. (laughs) Do you think that ever happens to God? Do you think God ever dreams something too big? Do you think God ever dreams something really exciting and then he sees what he has to work with, and then he goes, I don't know if it's going to happen. It might just not be realistic. Last Friday, I was at the Christmas tree lighting in downtown Portland. Were any of you guys out doing some Black Friday shopping? Don't lie. I know it was some of you. We've all been in those situations where there seems to be just thousands of people, right? You've been at a concert where there are just tons of screaming fans. You've been at a Blazers game with the righteous remnant, just a few screaming fans. Whenever I'm in those situations where there just seems to be a sea of people, I start to feel small. Have you ever felt small? I feel like, how am I supposed to make disciples out of all of these people? Jesus gave us a mission to go and make disciples out of all nations. And I see all of these people and I think, maybe God just dreamed too big. Maybe it's just not realistic. And I can get discouraged. And it gets worse. (laughs) The world population right now is 7 billion people. America makes up 315 million or only 4.5% of the world. So us as a country, we're very small in the global scale of things, at least in terms of numbers. Now, you don't just live in America. You live in Vancouver, Washington, the thriving metropolis, right? (laughs) Our estimated population is 165,000. On the chart here, you literally can't even see us. We are less than 0.00% of the global population. I literally don't know the percentage because it's so small. Here's my point. You are small. You are one in seven billion people. Do you know how much seven billion is? I mean, it's a lot of zeros. You're like a drop in the ocean. You're like a pine needle in a forest. You're like a pebble on a mountain. You are tiny. We are tiny people. We're very small. So sometimes I wonder, did God dream too big? Well, today we're going to see, actually, that it's okay to be small, and it's okay to be little, because God uses little people for big things. (laughs) God is going to use minnows to swallow sharks. He's going to use little people to accomplish some big 
things. If you guys want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, they should be on the pew, or if you're in worship too, they should be on the seat in front of you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you don't have access to one, um, we'd love to give you the one on the pew or the seat in front of you. Uh, It's also going to be on the screen behind me. I'm going to read the first nine verses of chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that is, if he found any Christians, whether they were men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. This is not the first time we've seen Saul in the story. Two chapters ago, at the stoning of Stephen, we learned that Saul was there holding people's coats and giving a thumbs up as they picked up rocks to throw at Stephen's head and kill him. And the Bible says that after that, a great persecution broke broke out. And Saul himself, it says that he went to people's houses, he banged on their doors, and then he dragged them off to prison. It literally says that he dragged them. I just imagine them going, no, no. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. And here on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus face to face. He becomes blind, and eventually he's going to become a Christian. He's going to become one of the most powerful ministers of the gospel we've seen yet. God is doing something big in the book of Acts. He's saving a murderer. In fact, everyone that we've seen so far who's been saved in the book of Acts are people we probably wouldn't typically expect to have been saved. The first group are 3,000 Jews, which in itself is not all that weird. But if you think in the context of the story, most of those Jews were probably at Jesus' crucifixion yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So many of Jesus' own persecutors actually become worshipers. After that, you've got Samaritans who were half-breed, covenant-breaking traitors. They didn't stand to inherit any promises of God. And yet when he sends his Messiah, they are one of the first groups to be inaugurated into the kingdom. After that, I mean, this just gets crazy, okay? A Gentile from Africa who works for the queen of Ethiopia is just, it's seriously a random story in your Bibles. He's literally just riding his carriage back to Africa, and Peter shows up. The guy's reading Isaiah 6, Peter preaches the gospel to him, and he becomes saved. You've got to realize, to the Jews who are expecting the coming Messiah, this is breaking down 
every social boundary that was in place. And now, not is it just a Gentile, not is it just a Samaritan, it is someone who's actually anti-Jesus. It's someone who actually hates the church. It is a murderer. God is doing something big in the book of Acts. He's saving people we would not expect. And, and I would guess if the story keeps going the way it has, pretty soon almost anybody's going to be able to get in. <laughs> Imagine with me that World War III breaks out. Let's say we go to war, I, don't, I wouldn't like to think this, but let's say we go to war with like North Korea or something. And, and eventually, nuclear war becomes inevitable. It becomes evident that the human race is going to be wiped out. But the American government has room in some underground shelters for a few hundred people, and it'll feed and it'll last them until everything kind of dies down. And it'll be their job to repopulate the earth and keep mankind going. Now, what if instead of trusting our nation's best and brightest, what if instead of trusting politicians, teachers, scientists, what if instead of that, we trusted the future of mankind to murderers? What if we went to the jails, to murderers, thieves, liars, and we trusted the fate of humanity to those people? I mean, that's almost as ludicrous as what's happening here. God is, do you not realize that God is saving a murderer? God is saving someone who hated him, who absolutely hated him. It'd be like if Osama bin Laden started applying for U.S. citizenship. It's, it's seriously crazy. Or Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, let's say he applies to seminary because he wants to be a pastor. That's insane. And that's what's happened here. But I want you to see that it's not just in the book of Acts that God is doing something big. He's doing something big in your life and my life as well. In fact, if you are sitting in this room and if you love Jesus Christ, that in and of itself is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. All conversions, miraculous or not, are a miracle of God. And I want to address this because I've heard a couple times working in youth group and working at camps and things like that, that my testimony is kind of boring. I was just raised in the church. I always kind of believed, blah, blah, blah. It's really not that exciting. It's like there's this idea that unless you used to be a gang member who shot heroin through your eyeballs and killed people every other day, unless that's your story, you've got a boring testimony that my story of salvation just isn't that exciting. I accepted Jesus in the nursery. (laughs) I mean, that idea is arrogant, and quite frankly, it's just ridiculous. As if, just because you've got Christian parents, or you were raised in the church, that makes your heart any less sinful, dirty, and damnable as the rest of ours. The beauty of the gospel is that we are all sinners, We all deserve separation from God, whether you were raised in church or not, whether you have Christian parents or not. And the beauty is that God chose to save us. Anytime a dead heart starts beating for the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a work of God, and he is to be praised just as much as he he should be praised for Saul's story. 
And it could be a three-year-old in the nursery during Sunday service, or it could be a 55-year-old dude doing time for rape. Either one. Both are miracles of God. And he is, able, and he is worthy to be praised for both. And I don't want to discredit the, the great stories um, of visions and miracles and gang members who accept the Lord. Those are great stories. I'm, my goal is not to bring those stories down. My goal is to bring the other stories up. <laughs> the kid who believes in Jesus because his parents loved him enough to tell him, that kid, that is just as much a miracle as the other stories. In fact, whenever I do end up having kids, I'm praying that they will not remember a day when they didn't love, worship, and serve Jesus Christ. And if God answers that prayer, it is just as much a miracle as him appearing to Saul on the road to Damascus. So my point is this. The fact that there are even people in this room worshiping Jesus Christ right now, and there are people in this city worshiping Jesus right now, that is a miracle of God, and he is doing something big. Right? Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah. God is doing something big. The story doesn't stop there. I want you to see that he's doing something big, and I want you to see that he's going to use little people. You and me. He's going to use Tiny old us. All right, so the story continues in verse 10. It says, In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas, not the bad Judas, on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. But Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and he was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Did you notice that Saul had a miraculous meeting with Jesus Christ, and he was not filled with the Holy Spirit until God sent Ananias? Why did he do that? Why did he take Ananias? Was it because Jesus was too afraid of confrontation? I don't know if you've read the Bible, but Jesus is not a guy who's afraid of confrontation. I don't think he was worried like, oh, and I don't know what Saul will think of me if I tell him about myself. (laughs) (laughs) Was it because he wasn't powerful enough? Well, he kind of raised himself from the dead. That's pretty powerful. 
I mean, Jesus was on the road face to face with Saul. If he had business or if he had something to say, why didn't he take care of it then? I think it's because God likes to use little people for big things. God likes to use us to save people. I would bet in your stories about how you became a Christian, there's a little person, right? There's someone who's not famous. There's probably someone who doesn't stand up here and preach every Sunday. I'll bet you that there is somebody who just loves Jesus and loves you, and therefore you love Jesus. I'll bet you that there's a little person in your story. For me, it was just my friend in seventh grade, right? And for Saul, it's Ananias. Saul has Ananias come and pray for him, and he receives the Holy, Holy Spirit, and he receives his sight. Later on, we're going to see that Saul becomes a very powerful minister of the gospel. So my encouragement to you is be somebody else's little person. If God is telling you to go talk to someone, go talk to them. Has God ever told you to talk to someone you don't really want to? Happens to me all the time, right? You'll be like, oh, geez, they smell weird. They look weird. They obviously hate you, Lord. They're going to arrest me. I mean, that's what Ananias said. But it's very possible that if the Lord is telling you to go talk to someone, that it may be they've had a road to Damascus type experience and it's like they are ready to hear the gospel for the first time. They could be like, ripe for the picking. And God chooses you to go and do it. He chooses you to watch his spirit enter a soul. How glorious is that, that God would have us come to work with him? It's not that God needs help. If anybody needs help, it's us, right? But he is so good that after becoming Christians, he would let us go and be a part of his mission. And that's what he did with Ananias. You want to know how I know that Ananias is a little person? Because he's nowhere else in the Bible. Nowhere else. He's not before. I don't even think he's mentioned much other than in light of Saul's story. He's just got those couple paragraphs, and then he's out. He's benched, right? (laughs) He is a little guy. We don't know his last name. All we know is that he lived in Damascus. We don't know his parents. We don't know his story. We don't know anything about him. He's a little guy. And in the grand scheme of things, we're a little too, remember? World population, 7 billion, year one. We're little people. But God uses little people for big things. And it wasn't just Ananias that God used. Two chapters ago, I already mentioned it, Saul was standing there as Stephen preached his last sermon before he died. That means that at least... Saul had heard the gospel once before. And I'd be willing to bet, because he was in Jerusalem, he had heard about it from other people beforehand. That means that Saul already had heard that Jesus was the Messiah. Saul had already heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. Saul had already heard that if you don't accept Jesus, you are going to hell. Saul had heard those claims before. And that can be encouraging to us because sometimes people just don't respond the way that we want them to after we tell them about Jesus. Have you got a friend who just stonewalls? And it's like you talk and they just... Nothing. Or it's like you talk and it goes over their head. 
You're like, hey, have you heard about Jesus? Like, did you see the Ducks game yesterday? You're like, what? It literally just, it doesn't do anything. Or maybe you've got someone who's just antagonistic. Instead of stonewalling or going over their head, they retaliate. They go back at you and they say, God doesn't, I don't believe in God because of X, Y, and Z, and Jesus is false because of this, that, and the other. I want to encourage you because that's exactly what happened to Stephen. Saul, instead of repenting and asking Jesus for forgiveness, he actually orders his murder and he starts persecuting other Christians. Sometimes people need more than what we can offer. In fact, uh, Dan Spade and Gary Mays, in their book, Growing a Healthy Church, they say that the typical unbeliever is going to need five or more meaningful experiences with Christians before they start to believe in the gospel. You're only one person, and according to them, they need five. Saul had two plus Jesus, so, I mean, he counts. (laughs) So my encouragement to you on that, keep on keeping on. Keep sowing the seed. If you've got someone who's stonewalling, going over their head, or pushing back, Just keep sowing the seed. Keep loving them. Um, Keep talking to them about Jesus. Keep praying for them. Because it may be that God will take that seed that you've sown and days, weeks, months, years, or decades down the road, that seed that you planted, it might just grow into a glorious, saving knowledge of the gospel. And you may not see it before you die. It may be in heaven that you see it. Can you imagine the look on Stephen's face when Saul showed up? He's like, what are you doing here? There must have been a mistake. Right? That might be your story. You might get in heaven and be surprised. All right, so we've seen that God is doing something big in the book of Acts. He's doing something big in your lives. And he has used little people, and he's using little people. But the story doesn't end there. We're going all the way to verse 31. It's the long haul, baby. So, continuing from verse 19b, it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call him this name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. This guy is a powerful preacher. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and he debated with Grecian Jews, but then they tried to kill him. This guy can't get a break. 
When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Excuse me. Do you see the contrast from the beginning and the end of the story? Saul goes from the persecutor to the persecutee. He goes from someone who, instead of persecuting Christians, he's trying to create more Christians. He's preaching the gospel that he himself once did everything he could to stop. Saul used to view the gospel as a cancer that needed to be stopped at all costs. And now he viewed it as a source of life. Something to him that was a disease became a cure. That's pretty powerful. And that's the power of the gospel. That God makes his enemies his friends. That God takes people who are orphaned and he makes them his children. He takes people who weren't loved and he makes them loved. He takes people who worshiped false gods or no gods and he made them worship the one true God for their good. I mean, how good is he to do that? So remember that friend I was talking about who's antagonistic, who kind of can be intimidating? I've got someone like that in my life too. Just keep praying, man, because sometimes God will take the hardest of hearts, and if he can redirect that zeal, which he can, then that person might just become one of the most powerful ministers of the gospel you've ever seen. My wife's uncle was like that. He was just not into church, not into anything like that. And now he's a pastor. He, I mean, he's an awesome guy. He loves the Lord. And I'll bet you, you've probably heard or know people like that too. <laughs> Recently, I heard about a guy. Um, I don't actually know him, but I heard the story about this guy who was in South Africa. He was part of the sex trade there. Uh, it was his job to kidnap 14, 15, 16-year-old girls and sell them uh, to do unmentionable things. That guy met Jesus and now his life is dedicated to rescuing women out of the sex trade and preaching the gospel to the perpetrators, something that we often overlook. In fact, this guy is so dedicated to it, his former employer is chasing him. He's on the run for his life. He's already been caught once and he was hospitalized for what they did to him, but he's not stopping I found out about it because of a video that he made. He's just like, keep going, preach the gospel, we love him. It's like, dude, you're going to (laughs) die. He doesn't care. And that's what God does. That's the power of the gospel. He takes the hardest of hearts and he turns them into champions for the Lord. God uses little people for big things. Saul himself, apart from the Lord, is a little guy. We think of him as a big guy, because he wrote almost half of the New Testament. I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. That's a big deal. Apart from the Lord, he'd be nobody. Right? I, I, I would bet you that apart from knowing Jesus, Saul would not even be in our Bibles. So you read in the story that when Saul shows up to Jerusalem, and he's like, dude, let's hang out, disciples. And they're like, no way. We heard about you, you are trouble, and I don't trust that you are actually saved. But Barnabas, 
He's the one guy who is willing to risk believing that God actually did something big in Saul's life. And so Barnabas hears Saul out. He listens to his story, and then he takes them, and he joins them up with the disciples. Now, here's why that's a big deal. It's hard to get connected to a church family sometimes, and it's a big deal for you to be in fellowship with other believers. Scott has said it a ton of times in a ton of different ways. Christianity is a team sport. There's no such thing as the Christian Lone Ranger. Okay, we've got, we're in this together, right? And so when Barnabas hooks Saul up with the other disciples, that's a big thing. I don't know if you were raised in the church or not, but when non-Christians become Christians, it's kind of weird to hang out with a bunch of people who you've never met, who are worshiping a God you've never seen or heard of before. It can be kind of intimidating. And frankly, some of us are kind of weird. Right? <laughs> so to have a buddy hook you up with the church and walk that, through that with you, that's a big deal. And so Barnabas did that. He showed what's called moral courage. Sometimes we think of courage as doing you know, something crazy on the battlefront, you know, dying for someone, and that is courage. This is courage in a different way, where everyone says, no way, not Saul. God wouldn't do that. Barnabas says, maybe he would. Maybe God would. Back to the Osama bin Laden thing, let's just say instead of applying for U.S. citizenship, he goes to the army recruiting office and he goes, I'm in. I'm going to die for this country. Okay? I'll do anything to protect its freedom. Can you imagine the look on the recruiter's face? Yeah, right. That's not happening. You can't really blame the disciples. It's like, dude, this is Saul we're talking about. Let's say Richard Dawkins, he's applying to seminary, right? Let's say the admissions team, they're looking over his application, and they're like, who is this? Richard Dawkins, oh, I've heard that name. Oh yeah, he wrote the book, The God Delusion. <laughs> We're not going to accept him. And then Pastor Scott, the Almighty, calls, and he goes, and he goes no dude, Richie Rich, he's been coming to my church he loves the Lord. He's been preaching the gospel fearlessly. He's working on a new book. He's, it's called I Was Wrong. <laughs> That's like what Barnabas does. He's the advocate for Saul here. And he hooks him up. And that's a big thing. That is a big thing in the life of Saul. It is spiritually unhealthy to be apart from other disciples for your whole Christian life. And so for Barnabas to hook Saul up to other Christians is like hooking a scuba diver back up to his air tank. It's a big deal. So you and I, we're tiny people. We're one in seven billion. We're the drop in the ocean. We're a pine needle in the forest, and we're a pebble on the mountain. But when we think about it, everyone's a little person. Saul was a little person. Any big person that you can think of, Billy Graham, Luis Palau, pastors like John Piper, apart from the Lord, they're little people too. And God will use one little person to do a big, big thing, and God will use another little person to do a big thing. It's his choice. Our job is to just be obedient in what he tells us to do. And maybe it'll be giant, huge, big. Maybe it'll be leading a megachurch like Pastor Scott. Or maybe 
It'll be doing something small, like telling your friend about Jesus, and that's that. Either way, God is worthy to be praised. So my encouragement to you, be obedient in the little things and believe, 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 believe that God might just use little old you to do a very big thing. I'm going to pray, and then the worship team will come up. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for Ananias. I thank you for Stephen, and I thank you for Barnabas. Without them, Lord, I don't know if we'd have Romans or Ephesians or any of, any of the other great epistles of the, of the Bible, Lord. And I, I thank you that that's an encouragement to us, that you could use us for whatever you want to do. I pray that we'd be available. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.